everybody, this is Issa Cosette, and you are listening to Issa's Way, your favorite podcast that you didn't know existed, you didn't know you needed, but we're so glad you're here. And this week, we have a very special guest coming live from New York, D. Dalmayanos Figueroa, born in Puerto Rico, raised in the Bronx, an amazing writer, novelist who wrote Daughters of the Stone, a wonderful novel that deals with five generations of Afro-Puerto Rican women. Her work has inspired me to continue on my dissertation research and to tap into our gifts, to tell our stories and embrace our journeys wherever we are with the voices that fill us, with the love that surrounds us. I am honored to be able to share space with her and listen to more about her story. Danma, can you please talk a little bit more about yourself and your experience as an Afro-Puerto Rican writer? Wow. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. Good morning to everyone. I suppose what led me to, to writing, I've always wanted to, to write, but I didn't know what because I had a very traditional education. I was an English major and I loved reading, which meant that I read mostly dead old white guy stuff. And while I loved it and I loved the stories that I, that I saw um, on film and television and in the books I was reading, by the time I got to college, it was very clear that none of those images were me and that the Puerto Rican images and the Latino images in general that were being presented in the media were very stereotypical and none of it was Afro-Latino. Uh, Afro-Latinidad did not exist in the, on the screen or um, in any of the media, but what did exist were hypersexualized women or super docile and women with no agency but their male counterparts. And the male counterparts were generally very violent or very subservient to whatever white characters were around. So by the time I got to college, I got tired of that. And then I read Down These Mean Streets by Dee Thomas. And I said, oh, wait a minute. Um, here's someone that's closer to my reality. But even that didn't fit right because his novel was about his reality which was very much 1950s street violent crime ridden and that was the reality for many people I don't take that away but it still wasn't my reality and so I just wanted to write a book about you know Puerto Ricans who got up and went to work and dealt with all the problems of being uh, an immigrant in New York City. And so you deal with racism, you deal with classism, you deal with sexism, you deal with all of that. And yet somehow we are self-directed to not accept all the negativity that is portrayed as our reality. And so I felt that I had to write our story my way. And I had to write the, about the people that I knew and the places that I knew. And when I was a kid, I was sent to live with my grandparents in Puerto Rico because our neighborhood in the South Bronx had gotten so violent. 
And there I was introduced to a whole other world of Afro-Puerto Rican-ness. Although the term did not exist then, but it was basically rural Black communities that existed and thrived and were not ashamed of their um, enslaved ancestors and our traditions of extended family and spirituality and um, our own foods and our own music and, and Negrito and all of that, all of that. And, and, um, and Bendicion every night and every morning and, and honoring elders and all of the things that made me think of love were tied to African roots. Thinking about embracing your roots, your work centers around spirituality, community healing, womanhood. Um, and even like you mentioned, like there at one point wasn't a term for Afro-Latinidad, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about how we continue to do the work for things that are not yet named or that other people don't have access to. So what more about your reality drives you to write about these topics, to talk about these topics, to deal with the uncertain or, you know, the unknown? Well, I think part of it has to do with finding out for myself. I, I, there's, there's an African saying that I love and it's basically, you know, you don't know what happened on the hunt until you speak to the lion. And I realized very quickly that the history and culture that we have been introduced to is a layer that is superimposed on a different reality. And very quickly, it, I realized that you have to dig deeper. Wherever you are, you have to dig dip deeper. Um, so I, I started looking at, I'm not a history expert, but I started looking at the history of Black people in Puerto Rico. I started talking to the eldest people I could find. I, and I wanted their stories. I wanted to know what their lives were like. What did they remember? How did they experience World War II, for instance? What did it feel like to work in the sugar cane? So I, I spent a lot of time listening to oral histories and delving beyond the obvious because the obvious and the story, the history as we have been told is the history of the conqueror. So I wanted to know about the history of the layer that has been covered over. And so I, I continue to research. Every time I go to Puerto Rico, I continue talking to people in different fields. So industrial architects or history professors or engineers or people who do studies on, for instance, the history of certain diseases, uh, epidemiology in, in Puerto Rico. So there are so many areas that we have not been informed about, that we have not even on the historical level dealt with very deeply. Um, so for instance, my second novel, A Woman of Endurance, or in Spanish, Indomita, is about um, 
Black women who were forced um, to have babies that were immediately sold on the on the block. And there wasn't a lot of information readily available on that type of breeding program within the enslaved communities in Puerto Rico. There just wasn't a history text that I could go to to find out a lot about that. So I had to find alternative ways of finding out information about our past. I like the notion of, of the alternative ways of finding information and just like, yeah, the lack of access we have or information in certain archives. and But the importance of, like you said, you doing and seeking those oral traditions and going to different people from different areas and finding the different perspectives of maybe the same story because one person may have experienced it from their point of view or privilege or experience and different from another woman or man or, you know. Um, and so I think that is interesting of the work that is done to do to be able to tell the stories and thinking about how you use the gifts and how you are using um, these experiences of these Afro-Puerto Rican women to help us or to help tell the stories and to help bridge these gaps in our narratives so that um, we can learn more about our past so that we can be able to be more present in this future. And so I'm excited to read A Woman of Endurance when it comes out. And um, I just wanna know what else can the world expect from your work in the future? When Daughters of the Stone came out, I thought, okay, I'm done. I, I told my story. This is what I wanted to say. But the original manuscript was 528 pages. And my publisher at the time said, we can only publish 300 pages. So you have to cut out 250 pages, which was quite a task. Um, and I remember one of my favorite writers, Toni Morrison, I remember her saying that uh, a novel has to be seamless. And I thought, how am I going to cut out 250 pages of this manuscript and keep it seamless so that people don't see where I edited things out? That was very difficult. So, um, a lot of the things that I edited out, whole characters, um, in fact, I saved everything because I, I do. This is my life. I save everything. But what I've decided to do is I want to bring back those facets of those characters that have been edited out and give them their own stories. So um, at some point, I would like to do a collection of short stories of characters, for instance, like Cheo, who was cut out, who left the narrative in Daughters of the Stone, but what happened to Cheo and what did he do? And he loved his families, but he left. And how did that impact on his life? And who, who was he? How did his life go? Um, that's one example, for instance, but there are many others of characters and even characters who remain in the story whose lives are not fully explored. And you can't fully explore all the characters in a story of five generations in a family in 300 pages, impossible. So if I wanted to fully explore those characters, I would have to create other narrators for them. That's one thing I'm looking at. Daughters of the Stone turns out to be the first book in an intended five book series. 
So Woman of Endurance would be the second. And in my mind, there will be three others. So we'll see what happens with that. Yes, I look forward to it. And I hope, you know, that you get all the support in the press and publication, the publishing houses are supporting because, yes, I would love to read those other stories because I, too, was wondering, like, like what happens when he leaves and, like, what happens in, the, like, the silence that has grown? Like, you know, what is on his mind? And so I th- that'll be amazing. I look forward to reading more of your work. And I hope that, you know, as, as writers, we realize that there's ways that we can use and like the pieces of novels or, or works or poems that may not work for one book or manuscript may be perfect for another. So uh, I'm wishing so much success and I can't wait to read that. Um, I know you're going to be able to share a little bit of your writing with us, with us today. Yes, I will share a little bit of it. But one of the things I wanted to say is that a woman of endurance, for instance, takes a minor character from Daughters of the Stone and gives her her own life. So this is these are the kinds of bridges I'm trying to build. I'd like to give your listeners a better feel for the book than just the intro. So chapter one is called The Arrival. A gray braid falling over each shoulder Pierre Josefa stuck her head out of the window of Las Agujas, the embroiderer's cabin located behind the main plantation house. The wagon returning from town swung around the main house and came to a final halt in the bate of Hacienda Las Mercedes, a sugar plantation near the northern coast of Puerto Rico. She recognized Romero, the mulatto mayoral, sitting high next to the driver. His shadow crawled over the supplies that filled the wagon behind him. The man wore black, all black, even under the scorching sun. The brim of his hat tilted forward, hid his eyes, leaving only his pointy chin and beak of a nose visible. The bony shoulders under his black cape looked nailed to the blue sky beyond. He gripped his whip handy, ready. In her day, Thea had seen many Black people come and go, but there had been no new ones in a long time. She knew Don Tomas had recently acquired a new parcela and needed more hands to work it into cane fields. One thing Thea knew for sure, where there was work to be done, it would be Black hands that would do it. So she stretched her skinny neck to take a good look at the men hoisting the monthly supplies, sacks of flour and rice, bolts of cloth, sides of smoked beef out of the wagons. Then came the rest of the cargo, frightened young boys, stone-faced men and hesitant women. Almost as an afterthought, they poured out into the courtyard brown and slow like molasses, the human purchases of the day. Thea searched for Fela, the tall woman she'd heard about and couldn't put out of her mind. She was the last to descend, a young woman in her early twenties. There was something familiar about the girl, but Thea couldn't place it and was too drawn to the scene to think about it for very long. There was much activity in the yard men unhitching horses, curious children scurrying about. 
Romero assigning quarters to the new slaves. The young woman eyed her surroundings from her height of six feet. The others were herded into cabins that stretched out beyond the wagons. Fela began to follow when Romero, the overseer, blocked her way and pointed his whip to Las Agujas, where she would be living. The woman just stared at him. Vamos, muévete. Tia Josefa heard Romero's command. Que no me oyes. They were deaf. Are you deaf as well as dumb? or just another stupid negra sucia. Fela examined him as though he were an unreliable animal. She didn't move. Romero stood directly in front of her and shouted his command into her face. But the woman Fela held her ground. Never known for patience, Romero snatched his whip and swung it overhead, but his hand froze midair the whip swinging impotently in the morning breeze. Maldita sea, he growled. Fela still hadn't moved. She showed no sign of fear or even apprehension. Romero's arm remained frozen in position. He looked from his arm to the whip and back to his arm. Confusion and then rage twisted his face. Finally, Fela turned and walked in the direction he had indicated. And soon she moved, and as soon as she moved away, his arm dropped. By the time the Mayoral recovered from his moment of confusion, Fela was making her way up the slope that led to the main house. Romero gathered himself to his full height, adjusting his hold on the whip. He was about to advance on her retreating figure when a commotion suddenly filled the batey. The horses had spooked and reared, toppling supplies that were still being unloaded. Bags of beans exploded under the trampling hooves. Sacks of flour burst into clouds of white, covering the yard in a layer of ghostly powder. Children ran, men cursed, drivers struggled to get the team of horses under control. Frantic voices filled the air. Corre! Men ran to help. Mira, nena! Ven aquí. The women pulled children out of the way. Cuidado! Warnings ran out as huge containers toppled over and spilled cornmeal, olives, and oil on those standing nearby. Ay, Dios mío! The man was pinned under the weight of several huge sacks of rice. Romero glared at the pandemonium and then back at the woman who was now beyond the whip's reach. Carajo, he yelled. He wound his whip and hooked it onto his belt. Before turning to the commotion, he propelled a long stream of spittle in the direction of Fela's retreating figure. As Tia watched the scene, her breath caught at the audacity of the young girl. She could almost feel Fela and Romero's will clashing in the air overhead and braced herself for the outcome. Fela approached Dia's window and stopped just on the far side. For a moment, the old woman got a glimpse of the sadness that collected in the corners of Fela's eyes and weighed them down. But immediately, the girl's face shut tight against the old woman. Her eyes, shiny as steel doors, were dressed in armor. Such stubbornness was familiar to Dia, like a long-forgotten melody of her youth. A finger of fear 
crept into Thea's heart. She knew that a slave, any slave, would have to yield or be broken. Thea wondered how long this young woman had been a slave and how much longer she would be able to stand so tall and distant. For Black people, pride was a sin punishable by death. The two women stood on opposite sides of the window as each examined the other. Thea went around to the door and motioned Fela inside, holding out her hand in welcome as the girl entered the room. Entra, mija. Entra. I have chills listening to you read it all over again. And just even, <laughs> like, literally, like, my whole body is just, like, and, like, rereading my notes aside. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. And just even Fela's presence. Uh, maybe that's what's just coming over me. Just, like, her power, her strength, and, like, yes. the science to be broken. Because as Black women, so many things and people try to break us but no like she stands strong and firm and I'm so grateful for women like the Josefa who pour into or who see her who encourage her who pour into her seat and so I'm thankful for you and I'm thankful for the women who have poured into you that you find your strength to tell these stories to write about this so that we can be strong too oh thank you so much how are you on your way Dama? how am I on my way that's an interesting question I think I, I, the reason that's an interesting question is because I depend on a great deal on my ancestors guiding the way. So it's not my way, it's their way. And I feel that as a writer, I am basically an antenna, um, a receptor for my ancestors who never got the chance to tell, to lift their voices and tell their stories. And so I, I meditate as a part of my writing process and I do it early in the morning at four or five. And I feel like they visit me in my, in my dreams and they follow me into my day. And, you know, I, I tell stories that, that need to be told that have been silenced either purposely or or not, but um, you know the 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 wisdom of the older rural black women on the island has never been fully appreciated, and and I just open myself to that, and if I can help in that process, then I'm successful. Well, I pray that your ancestors continue to guide you and give you the wisdom and the words to finish book three, four, and five, and the more to come and inspire us to keep tapping into them so that we realize that it's really their way. Because I like that. I like that. It's not really my way. It's their way. And I'll continue mm -hmm. to sit with that and ask for more guidance from them as I work on my practice as well of listening and for the clarity that, that I need. So Thank you so much for being a light. Thank you so much for trusting them and um, being a vessel because I know it's not easy, but it's so worth it. Yes. Yes, it is. Thank you. Tell the people where they can connect with you, their mailing list, buy your book, pre-order your next book, all that fun stuff. Well, my webpage is www.dalmayanosfigueroa.com. And it's my, my name is all continuous without spaces. And you will find all the information on there. At the bottom of the first page, 
you can put in your email address so that we can stay in touch and you can find out where I will be and when I will be and where my readings will be, whether virtually or in person. And while you're there, you can take a look at my other publications. There are videos there of my reading, some of my work. And uh, Daughters of the Stone was 10 years old in 2019. And we had a birthday party for it. And so there's, there's a video of some of the birthday party anniversary celebration. And if you want to leave a message for me, do. And there's, there's a way of contacting me there, as well as if there are, this, this novel is being taught in about 25 universities and that I know of, uh, I don't know of any others other than that. But if someone is interested in, for instance, a professor who wanted me to come and speak in their class or become part of a reading series, there is a, a, an author appearance form also online that you can fill out. And I love talking to readers because when a writer, at least I feel when I sit down to write, it's a monologue. But when I have readers reacting to my writing, it becomes a dialogue and another way for me to learn. So I always welcome that. Yes, please join her mailing list. Please connect with her and give her all of her praise and flowers for the wonderful gifts and the stories that she's telling. It's been such an honor to just listen to you and sit with you. And I look forward to just growing with you in the future because this is not the end of me, okay? <laughs> you got to Absolutely. <laughs> and, and people ask what's the best way to support not just me, but any writer. And the best way to do that is to review our books online. So whether it's good books or whether it's Amazon or any other place where um, Barnes and Noble is online, you could just leave your impression there because often publishers look to see how many people are reading this book. What do they think about it? So um, that is goes a long way into getting books reprinted and republished and passed along. I know that our communities are mostly word of mouth. It's a lot of this, you know, you go into the beauty parlors, mira muchacha, mira lo que estoy leyendo. But, um, but there is a, a more formal way of supporting writers. Word of mouth is wonderful. Um, but we need to let the writers know when we feel that we have found a valuable resource. Thank you for that tip, because sometimes we forget to do that. So listeners, do your due diligence. Don't only just word of mouth, but also put it online. Let's be active digitally so we can continue to have our stories published and mm -hmm. shared around the world. Thank you so much for everything. You are so welcome. Um, for all of my wonderful listeners, as you continue to tell your stories, tap into your gifts, or honor your ancestors, may you sit still and know that your story is important. Until next time, this is Issa Cosette. Y'all be blessed. Mm -hmm.